starting on uh, page 7 from Mark 12. So Mark 12. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Notice that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And the second reading, uh, James 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old, uh, filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of, of him uh, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scriptures... Love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have been, become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. It's great to see you. I have a feeling that this is not going to work. My feeling is correct. Sorry, Manny. Okay. Great to be with you. My name's Rowan. If we haven't met, I'm the assistant minister here. Um, we are looking at the book of James, a passage that was just read to us. Uh, it's a challenging passage today, and 
hope it can be an encouragement to you. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Father, we thank you that you are not a silent God, but that you reveal yourself uh, through your word and through your son, the Lord Jesus. And so as we read this now, we pray that we might see more of Christ, uh, his glory and who he is, uh, see something of that which you call us to in him as his followers. And by your spirit, we pray that you might comfort, uh, challenge and encourage us. Uh, to that end, uh, we pray that you might use my words for that, those purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're in our series in James. And James, we, we began a series we're talking about, is about aligned living. Uh, James is a book uh, full of imperatives. It's full of commands. It's full of almost short sermons, or, or in one commentary it said short homilies, are calling us to certain things. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting book to read because unlike Paul, which we've discussed in, in, in the past weeks, it doesn't talk so much about the basis of our salvation. Uh, Paul, in, in his letters, often talks about um, the, the rich theology of what it means to be in Christ. It means uh, to be saved and uh, justified by him in his death and resurrection. And then often Paul, from that basis, will then talk about what that means to follow him. Well, that, that basis is assumed in James, and so he just kind of cracks straight in uh, with commands. And so it's a book, as you read, that is challenging. Uh, when we opened it for the first time, it, it rubs up against our sensibilities, it challenges us. Um, but it's not there to crush us, uh, it's there for us to see the mercy that is ours in the Lord Jesus and to seek to become more like him. And that's what I hope for this afternoon as we look at this passage. In today's passage, it begins, and he doesn't mess about, he jumps straight in. He says, brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. In one sense, that's the content of the sermon. You must not show favoritism. And we'll be looking at that under three headings. You can see them there in the outline, the order of service. Uh, it is, what is the problem? Looking at favoritism in verses 1 to 4. Why it's such a big problem, verses 5 to 11. And then how we can be different. How can we speak and act and be thinking about to apply this in the context of our lives, even at work? What, why, and how? Uh, so that's what we're going to be looking at. So let's, let's jump straight in. What is the problem? Favoritism. Verses 1 to 4. See, James is speaking about a real problem. This is not a hypothetical problem. This is a real problem in the church then. Verse 1. Followers of the Lord Jesus, believers in the Lord Jesus, must not show favoritism. The problem is favoritism. That is, the church is making distinctions between people. It's discriminating against people. It's treating people differently. For the church then, the favoritism was economic. And James runs up again and again and again, particularly throughout the letter, the themes of rich and poor. And so here, the issue is economic. It's them treating the rich with partiality and the poor were being ignored. And James illustrates this in, in verses 2 and 3 with this parable almost of the rich and the poor man. The rich man comes in wearing fine clothes, 
He's given honor, so he's, he's honored in the world and he's honored in the church. Whereas the poor and the vulnerable come into the church, they're poor and vulnerable outside the church, they come in and they're treated as though they are ignored and put off to the side. The church has made distinctions, they've become judges. And in verse 4, he articulates why this is such a problem. It says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with your evil thoughts? See, what they had communicated is that someone's, someone who is worth much in the world, based on outward appearance, is worth more in the church. And so someone who is worth less in the world is worth less in the church. Favoritism ends up judging and treating people differently, judging one's person's soul almost as having greater value than another. And it does this on the basis of superficial, worldly criteria. Last week we saw that true religion, religion that is pure and faultless, verse 27 of chapter 1, moves towards the needy and not away from them. It does not let the world define someone's worth. And so as we read this today, and as you read the illustration, particularly in verses 2 and 3, it seems a bit twee, doesn't it? Like it's, it's a parable, but you kind of think, yeah, well, of course that's wrong. Um, so it's easy to distance ourselves from it. It's, it's a temptation for us to think, no, that's not us, we're good. But when we read Scripture, we need to pay attention to the circumstances, what's going on there, and they will be different, but the human heart has not changed. And so this could be a real problem for us today. And James comes down hard on his verdict. Favoritism is profoundly unchristian. And he goes further, he even calls it evil. But he goes on to give us two reasons why. He doesn't just state what is wrong, he goes on to explain why it's wrong, why it's such a big problem in verses 5 to 11. And firstly, it's because it goes against the grain of how God works in verses 5 to 7. Remember, pure and faultless religion, that is from, from verse 27 to chapter 1, does not let the world define someone's worth. A person's worth is, is found in, in who they are as an image bearer of God or who they are in their relationship with the Lord Jesus. But the world, both then and now, celebrates important, smart, beautiful, wealthy, and the powerful. Just the whole phenomena of celebrity is kind of this on display for us. Uh, speaking of celebrity, so my dad, 6 p.m. tonight, trains opening out west, first day. Dad rocked up, 6 a.m., to beat the masses. Thousands, he told me, were going to be there. He was the only one there. <laughs> but the media were there, and so he's been all over it all day, and he's been <laughs> lapping it up. The important, the influential... But it, it is fascinating to think through, as, and as, as we think about those categories, the important, the smart, the beautiful, the wealthy, and the powerful, again, it's easy to think, oh, that's not important to us. But the reality is, 
That's the way that James talks about the world. It's the pollution of the world, and it's also part of our sinful nature because if we're honest, these things are actually intoxicating. They're really appealing for us, and they may take various forms, but they're ultimately something that we want because ultimately it's about glory, and ultimately we want glory. But what James says here is that's not how the kingdom of God works. That is not what life under Jesus looks like. Look at verse 5. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen the poor? Sorry, has God not has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those whom he loved? To inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. So when, when the first readers read this, they would have answered yes, because Christians generally then were the socially poor. There were exceptions to that rule, but on the whole, they came from poorer industries. They were fishermen. They were involved in different trades. Uh, they were not the influential in society. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. And so this is the pattern of the kingdom. John Dixon, a historian and pastor, writes this. God chose to reach the world not from the top down, but from the bottom up. So James says, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? God chose to reach the world not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Sam Albury, a British pastor, writes this, God has chosen the poor to have great spiritual riches in Jesus, and they have hit the jackpot. And it comes with wonderful spiritual dignity. They stand to inherit God's kingdom. They are heirs and princes. The world has given them the lowest of positions. God has given them the highest. God chose to reach the world not from the top down, but from the bottom up. This is true of the church then. And largely, this is the way that God works now. See, it might seem to us that Christianity is hitting hard times, particularly in the West, but globally, the church is growing. Jeremy Treat, he's a pastor at uh, Reality Church in LA, he's also a theology professor, has written a book on the kingdom of God called Seek First. It's a good book. If you want one on the kingdom, go to it. But in it, in a series of, of tweets, uh, he tweeted this week about the growth of the kingdom globally. He says this, the movement of Jesus is a global multicultural phenomenon that is more diverse than any community or religion this world has ever seen, and it's growing faster than ever. Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, and he is doing it across the earth. An estimated 80,000 people become Christians every day throughout the world. In 1910, there were only 8.7 million Christians in Africa, Today, there is an estimate of 630 million Christians in Africa. In 1949, there were under 1 million Christians in China. Today, there are over 58 million Protestants in China. Nigeria has more Protestants than Germany, the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation. Brazil has twice as many Catholics as Italy, the center of Catholicism. The name of Jesus is being praised in 4,765 languages throughout the world. The staggering numbers could go on and on. The biblical vision of the multi-ethnic community is being realized and God's glory is being seen among every tribe, 
language, people, and nation. Did you notice where the kingdom is taking root? Many of the places the gospel advancing the fastest is in the overwhelmingly poor areas, Latin America, Africa, parts of Southeast Asia. And the pattern is hard to miss. And could it, could it be that it's because they potentially realise something that the rich and the influential, influential, perhaps the West, are slow to pick up? And that is our weakness, neediness and bankruptcy before God. Martin Luther once said, we are beggars, this is true. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, blessing, is for those who humbly recognise their need for grace. So this is how God has worked throughout history and how God works now. It doesn't work exclusively amongst the poor, but we see that there is great fruit to those who are poor and poor in spirit. And so James is saying, by favouring the rich over the poor, what they have done is they've stripped the poor of their honour, honour shown to them by God himself and his Messiah. And the great irony is, if you look at verses 6 to 7, is that this is exactly how the rich, the worldly rich, were treating them. In verse 6 to 7, they were, they were dra- being dragged into courts, they were treating them with dishonour, and Jesus' name with dishonour. When we show favouritism, James is saying in these verses, it goes against the grain of how God works. But secondly also, it goes against the grain of God's law in verses 8 to 11. It's in that second point there as well. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. When we show favoritism, James tells us we break God's law, his perfect law. His law articulated in the Old Testament as loving God and loving your neighbour in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And in the reading that we read from Mark 12, Jesus gives the executive summary of the law when he says to love God and to love your neighbour. It's a summary of what God wants from us. He wants us to love our neighbour. It affects our behaviour towards others. And because Jesus put this command front and centre, James calls it here the royal law. Jesus the King has confirmed that, that this is the law that defines the lifestyle of the kingdom. And it may be possible, as, as you read this, that the original readers thought they were doing this that they thought they were loving their neighbours. But what becomes clear is that they were loving their neighbours, but it was just their rich and important neighbours, and they'd ignored a whole series of other people. So it doesn't fly for James. He says, by showing favouritism, you you sin, and therefore you break the law. And if you break one of the laws, you are guilty of breaking the whole law. That's the logic of verses 9 to 11. If we're selective in our obedience to a command, it's actually disobedience to the whole thing. I have a friend who's allergic to nuts. Uh, Once upon a time, we served him 
veggie patties with a hint of peanut butter. It didn't end well. He sent him to hospital. Uh, there would have been no point in saying to him, but I put heaps of chickpeas in it. Uh, the point is, the whole batch is ruined by the breaking of this one ingredient commandment. And James is saying it's in a similar way. By selective obedience to a command, we're breaking the whole things. Jesus, sorry, James mentions that, you know, that they have no excuse, there's no way out of breaking that law to love one's neighbour. That the church was loving their neighbours, fussing over the wealthy, does not cover up the fact that others were being quietly ignored. It could be rightly said that sometimes, you know, it might be that we fuss over certain types of people. We even bend over backwards to welcome them. But we might not be aware all along that we're quietly ignoring others. And by doing that, James is saying, we break the whole law. Why is this a problem? Well, favoritism breaks God's command to love, and it goes against the grain of God's law. He's given us two reasons why. So in a response, how, how are we then to, to respond to this? How are we to speak and to act? Well, last week we saw that the word is a mirror. So we're not merely to listen to the word, we're to do what it says. And James finishes this section with these words. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The essence of this is he's saying that, that we will be weighed against Jesus' teaching of loving our neighbour. That is the law that gives freedom. Now, at first reading, this seems like a, a salvation by works, that we're only given grace and mercy if we behave a certain way. But we're told in chapter 1, verse 18, that new birth is a gift. Salvation is by grace through faith. But I think what James is getting at here is that works are the proof of that new birth. Jesus says it this way in Luke's Gospel. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit, and a good tree produces good fruit. So obedience to Christ's ways is a sign that we have been saved by him, that his death and resurrection have, have truly gripped us. We'll see next week that true faith changes us, and that transformation is gradual, but James is saying it's unmistakable. In verse 13 he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Shaming the poor over the rich is to withhold mercy from those who need it. But if we do, James is saying, God will withhold his mercy from us. So he frames this as a warning but he exposes something. One commentator writes this, those who never show any mercy cannot have internalised and accepted God's mercy. And perhaps we might need to hear that, but the answer isn't here to, to summon willpower to try and be merciful. It's to remember the mercy that is extended to us in Jesus. This week, I don't know if you saw... Uh, the clip that went viral, there was a commencement speaker at Morehouse College in the US. It's a, it's a university. 
and billionaire tech advisor Robert Smith um, at this commencement speech very calmly uh, declared that his family was going to wipe the debt of every student he was addressing. There were 400 students there. They, they reckon it's about 58 million American dollars. And in his commencement speech, he just, he just kind of dropped it, that debts are cleared. The Apostle Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This tech advisor, Robert Smith, his actions, kind of, it has a whiff of the gospel in it, doesn't it? He extends a kindness, debts forgiven. They could not earn that kind of favour from him. Well, God in his mercy, in our bankruptcy, he, he, he lets go of his wealth. For our sakes, he becomes poor, he becomes flesh, he takes on our sinful humanity, he dies our death for us, and he's raised to new life so that instead of our poverty and our neediness, we're clothed in riches and we have the inheritance of, of the king. It's, it's kind of outrageous mercy. And what is the natural overflow of, of such generosity? Well, it's interesting in this guy's speech because after announcing that he was counselling their debt, he, he, ex, he put the expectation on the class. The graduation class of 2019, he said, pay it forward. You've been extended mercy, therefore show mercy. And in a similar way, we could not have earned our favour with God. It was a result of his mercy, but his mercy works in such a way in our lives that it overflows with joyfulness. When we say no to favouritism, when we speak and act in accordance with the law that brings freedom, it demonstrates that we are the true recipients of, of mercy. It demonstrates that we understood our own, our own bankruptcy before God, our own vulnerability, our own neediness before him, and yet in his mercy he clothes us in Christ. What wonder that is, and that should overflow in our lives. So James here frames it as a warning. If you don't show mercy, you won't be extended mercy. But Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, frames it as a blessing. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I kind of don't envy the guy who has to give the commencement speech next year. It's, a, it's kind of a high bar to set, isn't it? Or if you're in the year below, you'd be like, oh, come on. Ripped off. Well, let's, um, let's think how this applies to us. Um, and as I've been thinking about it, I think, what does it mean for us? Well, in one sense, it's the same. We're not to show favoritism. And the question that we, we should ask as we're, we're going through James is, are we aligned? Are we aligned with the faith that we have received and are we living lives which reflect that? For them, they were showing favoritism in, in the economic kind. For them, someone was worth more in the world who was worth more in the world, was worth more in the church. Uh, but we've seen that the pattern of the kingdom is the opposite. God chooses to reach the world, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. And so we are to love our neighbours, to show mercy, and to move toward the needy. And so our application is, is I think, not to show favouritism and to love our neighbour. We need to 
have that posture of moving toward the vulnerable and the needy. We are, they are to be receiving a welcome here because all of us recognise our own spiritual poverty. But it's good to think about tangibles, I think. How, how can we do this? Well, I think that there's heaps of ways that we can do this, but a few simple, tangible ones. We've even heard uh, tonight where Sam mentioned participating in a city care lunch and particularly moving and stepping towards needy and the vulnerable, the ways that we can participate in that. Uh, next month, we're going to hear from Hope City. Um, also, too, we've had the recent Compassion um, program come in here and speak about supporting our children in, in the third well, uh, a meeting with the pastor from Living Waters Church, it's an indigenous church in Redfern, uh, this week. We, we already, as Churchill Anglicans, support them financially, but just trying to think about some of the connections that we can have with that church. There's, there's tangible ways that we can take this word and not just merely listen to it, but be doers of it. And so can I just encourage you to take the next step there? That might just be a simple conversation with someone, it might be an email just to get involved. But we can show favoritism by our passiveness. Let's actively do something with it. Do, do, take something tangible away that we can do to make a step towards the vulnerable and the needy. I think that is a, an application uh, that we can take from this. But favoritism can be shown in all kinds of ways. One writer wrote this, James focuses on the sin of economic partiality, but there are many kinds of sinful partiality, that's favoritism. Persons discriminate against others based on external appearance, gender, attire, social status, music preference, age, nationality, and many other factors. When we exercise sinful partiality, knowingly or unknowingly, we fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. Now, are there people you knowingly or unknowingly ignore? People in our midst? People you don't click with, perhaps, or people you, you don't, who don't get you or your, your circumstances? Well, the wonderful thing that we've been reminded tonight is that the kingdom of God is this brilliantly diverse community united around its king. That's kind of its glory. Let's step toward one another in the midst of our differences but that's going to be uncomfortable um, in Anglican liturgy and in some other liturgies that uh, more traditional churches use. They, ha use, they have uh, the, the greeting where you, you go and extend a greeting to one another in the middle of the service where you can go, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. It's super awkward. Um, but in one sense, it's a picture of what that uncomfortableness is as we are gathered together as God's united people around the King Jesus. We come from so many different backgrounds and it's kind of this kind of parable almost of, of the kind of uncomfortable nature it is for us to be thinking about stepping toward one another, um, particularly when we feel uncomfortable. So are there people that you knowingly or unknowingly ignore? How can you step towards them? Let's check our hearts that we're not ignoring others, that we don't gravitate toward people because they're in similar life situations or we find it easy. What is the next step? Think about who it could potentially be and what it would look like to encourage them, to care for them, to move toward them. Let's prioritise 
gathering for afternoon tea at, at 4 p.m. Let's, let's prioritize texting one another. Let's prioritize hospitality. Hospitality isn't dinner parties. It's just having people over for a simple meal. There's many tangible ways, steps in the right direction of being this kind of community that doesn't show favoritism. What's the next step for you? I've been challenged by this even myself, um, to be thinking about tangible ways in which I can be stepping toward others so as to, to kind of be instilling and, and doing the, the, the flip side of favoritism. What is the corresponding virtue that we need to be doing as a community? But as we do this, we can only do it because we have internalised the gospel. We can only show mercy and grace because we have received it ourselves. And we have been given grace and mercy in overwhelming measure in the Lord Jesus. Let me close with these words that I read earlier from 1 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it is to us. We pray that by your spirit you'll be prompting us to know how we can respond. We thank you that you are patient with us, uh, that progress in the Lord Jesus is, is gradual, uh, but you are kind and you're at work in us this way. But we pray that we might be the kind of community which is welcoming to all, that does not show favoritism. Uh, thank you that in many ways we are this community and, and may we be so more and more. And we pray that this might be uh, a glorious thing to observe, that people may praise our Lord Jesus for it. In Jesus' name, amen.